0: Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to make cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings as much as the buildings themselves. Today I meet up with the founders of Make Space for Girls, a campaigning charity that is advocating for public space and parks designed for teenage girls. They make the case that councils often spend more money to deal with dog waste than they do providing facilities suitable for teenage girls and that 80% of public spaces are occupied by teenage boys. Make Space for Girls was set up by Susanna Walker and Imogen Clark who argue that this absence of public space for girls is not only a problem for the vibrancy and safety of our cities, but also against the law under the Equality Act of 2010. So, Susanna, thanks for being here with me today. Uh, Tell me about Make Space for Girls.
1: Well, it began when I read the Caroline Cardo Perez book, Invisible Women, and she's got a short section about parks and play facilities for teenagers. And I read it and it was just like a revelation because she points out that almost everything that is provided for teenagers, quote unquote, is actually predominantly designed for and used by boys. And I looked at the town I live in, which is Froome in Somerset, and it's an absolute textbook example. We have a skate park, we have a BMX pump track, and we have a MUGA, a multi-use games area, so a fenced pitch. And that's it. I was, I was really sort of mind boggled that I hadn't seen this before. And I do have a teenage daughter. So I, you know, this really mattered to me. Um, And I went and asked our council about this. And they came back to me and said, oh, well, we don't really think of our equipment as being for either boys or girls. And I was like, hmm, that seems to be the problem. And then I started talking to Imogen, who brought a slightly different and very interesting perspective to bear on it all, which she's probably better off explaining.
2: Yeah, so I mean, I my, my background, my training was as a lawyer and I practiced for many years and one of the things I used to look at was uh, equality legislation and the Equalities Act and how organizations can work to create a more sort of diverse and inclusive um, way of, of, of running themselves. And within the Equality Act, there's a provision called the Public Sector Equality Duty and That's a duty that's been sort of knocking around in the field of of gender law for quite a long time, so prior to 2010. But in in, in 2010, there was a big consolidation they brought in the public sector equality duty, which is a duty that's imposed on every public authority and also organisations that are exerting um, public authority-type functions to think about ways in which they can reduce or eliminate unlawful discrimination and to promote the position of disadvantaged groups. And so what this means in the context of teenage play provision is if you take the time to look, and that's a big if, because I think part of the problem is people are not taking the time to look. But if you take the time to look, you see that actually teenage girls are not using the provision as much as teenage boys or anywhere near as much. There's a very obvious disadvantage. And so what that means is that public authorities, local authorities who are commissioning parks, who are working with organisations to improve parks, need to stop and think about, I've got a disadvantage group. Are there ways that I could reduce that disadvantage? Now, the point about the public sector equality duty is it's not telling people what the outcome should be. But what it is saying is you need to stop and think about disadvantaged groups and think about ways you could ameliorate that disadvantage. It doesn't compel you to ameliorate it, but it doesn't mean you have to stop and think about it. And what we have seen when we've looked at the way people have Use this duty have complied with this duty is sometimes people just don't even really think about it at all when people do think about it in the context of play provision there seems to be a sort of complete inability to see gender as an issue people see disability as an issue and that's incredibly important you know we should be making our park provision accessible to people with disabilities whatever those disabilities are But nobody was actually stopping and going, hang on a second, we're going to build another skate park. Who's using these skate parks? Oh, it's mostly boys. Well, maybe we should do it. Nobody was doing that step. And that's partly what we're trying to encourage councils to bring into their thinking a bit more clearly.
0: So you're seeing these spaces being created, lots of money being spent on them they appear to be favoring boys. And, and how do you define that space for girls? As you said, you, you, the law doesn't define how you should or even that you should rectify it. But are there spaces that girls are using? And are there lessons we can learn? What kind of a space is for girls? Um,
1: there's a, what's interesting is that there have been some experiments in Europe which have worked really well. Um, and the, the absolute sort of gold standard case study is Vienna, where they pursued a policy of gender mainstreaming in their planning for about 20, 20 years now. And what this means is that they are forefronting the issues of gender in every decision they take, which in a way it's a bit like the public sector equality duty. They're not saying that things have to have a particular outcome, but they're saying what happens if we look at every planning issue through the eyes of gender. Um, and one of the experiments they did was in a park um, called Einsiedler Park, where they were aware that girls were passing through, but not using the park very much. and. One of, the, one of the important things they did was simply, as Imogen said, to notice it and measure it in the first place, because unless you've got data, you have no idea. And in the UK, we have no data at the moment. Um, and they, they tried a number of different interventions to encourage girls to use the park more. And it started very simply. They were aware that the girls were, were going through on their way to and from school, but not stopping. So as a first step, they just put up little sort of stages that could be seating areas or could be played on, and they put up hammocks. And the girls started using them and started stopping more. Then they really began to talk to the girls. And this is really important because every space has its peculiarities and its differences. The girls who use it are, you know, have different needs. The area around is different. So there's not like you can say this is a one-size-fits-all um, set of solutions. You have to talk to the girls' concern. And one of the things they discovered is that girls were not being allowed to play in the sort of main pitch area because the boys would take it over. So they broke it up into one space that was a pitch, one space that wasn't. And also they opened up the um, entranceways. Because if you've got a Muga, a multi-use games area with just one entranceway around which the boys can congregate, it can be a very threatening thing for a girl to walk into that and then discover that there's no exit. So um, that was really important. They took one of the walls away, they put in extra exits, and the girls used it more. The other thing they did was improve very basic things. Safety is obviously really important for girls in parks. So they improved the lighting and paths which you can see where they are going. So, generally, and there are some general rules you can deduce from this, that a park with a, a path around the perimeter works really well for girls because you've always got the choice of ways to go. You're not going to suddenly end up in a dead end. Um, so, and also the breaking down of spaces does tend to be a solution that quite often works because boys have a tendency to take up an area and not let girls take parts. And part of the Vienna research, they discovered that. Um, where younger girls were asking to join in with older boys. Um, 50% of the time, they didn't even dare ask. And I'm not surprised, really. I'm surprised they even managed 50% of the time because 87% they were rebuffed, and as the research says, often with sexual insults. So boys can be quite territorial about space, and breaking it down really helps girls access parks and public spaces. So you read the book... You
0: you started to look at uh, the spaces around you. You started to look into this research. Imogen brought the law, uh, you know, it, it shot a light on the law, and you, you came together to start Make Space for Girls. What's your, your mission and purpose, and what is
2: Make Space for Girls? I think, I mean, our mission and purpose is to make parks and similar public spaces as welcoming to teenage girls as they are to teenage boys. Yeah, know, there's lots of great stuff about we did this to the park and it was really great and the young people came. But actually, people are using the phrase young people to mean young men because of the facilities that are being put in there. So as I say, it's simply our mission is to make those spaces as welcoming to teenage girls as they are to teenage boys. Um, we're a campaigning charity primarily, which means that we're, looking at the research. We're trying to encourage other people to get involved in collecting data. We're trying to talk to as many people as we can to raise the issue. Because actually, a lot of the time when we talk to people, they're really positive about this. They actually have one of those moments where they go, heck, yes. I hadn't thought about it before in those terms. But now I'm looking at it in this way. I'm thinking, maybe we could do better. So as I say, we haven't got all the answers. But we do know that one of the answers is absolutely, definitely spot the issue. Start looking at the data. Start recognising before you build another skate park. Hang on a second. Skate parks are great, but are we missing something here? So that's what it's about. Because really, I think what happened when we put the
1: law together with the sort of realization was the sense that not only is there a problem, but actually there is a way of getting people to think about it. Where well, you know, and the uh, the public sector equality duty is very useful in focusing people's minds rather than going, oh yes, that's nice. It's like, oh yeah, actually we should should be doing something here. So that's what made it, a, you know, seem like a really good space to campaign in, um, and. We want to be quite focused because of this, but also what we're hoping is that it, it's. I always think of it as being like something that leaves off a lid. That once people start looking at quality in this very specific area, they will start to open their eyes in other places as well. So far,
0: um, the work that you've you've put out a very uh, good summary of research findings. What's next on your agenda? What's the next thing you would really like to to tackle?
2: The next next stage is to start to get some pilots up and running, which doesn't mean that the research stops, which doesn't mean that the talking to lots of people stops. It doesn't mean any of the existing stuff stops. But the next stage is to get some pilots up and running. And really, there are three pilots that need to be thought about, and they kind of go along a timeline. The first is a series of pilots about actually engaging with teenage girls about a specific place near where they live to understand what their experience of that space is and what could be done to make it better. So that's the first set of pilots. And Susanna, you were seeing somebody yesterday about this. Yes, we've, because um, one of the things is that girls don't have a language for what they want
1: because mm-hmm. the vocabulary of teenage play space is so geared towards boys that it's not just. You can't just rock up and go, what would you like? Okay, you've got a list of things you understand. We need to really work with teenage girls to find out how they use the space, why they don't use some spaces, and probably work with architects and artists to to produce some ideas that we can go forward with. You know, it's you can't just go through the catalogs and get them to tick things that look, that look likely. So that needs to be quite, you know... A, relatively long-form process in the sense of, you know, over over several sessions to to work with a couple of groups. And yes, we hopefully, we've got several things that may come together over the summer where we should be running one or two pilots in a couple of different areas. Obviously, we'd have liked to be doing this sooner, but COVID has knocked everything and everybody's consultations back. And there are no youth groups and schools are just trying to stay alive at the moment, so they really don't want to be part of anything that, that isn't just involved in their day-to-day life. But we hope that come September, we should have a couple of pilots running in that way.
2: And that's kind of the first string of pilots, because I mentioned there are kind of three strings. The first string of pilots is that, it's talking to, engaging with girls. The second rung, which may which will build on the first is to actually do some small-scale interventions and again it's possible that we may be able to get some of that running kind of in parallel with the the consultation piece but actually as they did in Vienna make some small relatively low-cost interventions and see what the difference is you know think about making some pop-up spaces which are Designed for and intended to draw teenage girls in, and see what the impact is. Because one of the big problems, as Susanna said, is that you know nobody's measuring park usage in these terms. There isn't the data there. There's pretty good data about skate parks, to be honest. You know, the general consensus is 85% usage by boys. Um, but you know, other areas, Moogers, for example, very little data. So. The idea is a second set of pilots, which are low cost interventions, relatively low cost interventions, but which give you a chance to test ideas. And I think there's some quite exciting opportunities where people have got access to land on a short term. So, for example, you know it's waiting for uh, a planning permission, or, you know, and so there are some quite exciting uh, groups we've been talking to. So, look, we've got a plot of land, we've only got it for like a year because then we have to hand it back to the developers. But in that year, we can kind of play with that space a bit. So the, that could be a really interesting space to do that sort of thing in, just to sort of try out some ideas. And then there's the third pilot, Susanna. Which in the long term, and this clearly is going to take a few years to sort out, we want to build a park
1: designed by a group of teenage girls for teenage girls, which would just be fabulous, but that's clearly going to take quite a lot of fundraising and sorting out. Um, but yes, but there are, you know, there are possibilities. And they, in terms of the short-term stuff, there are parks are realising that at the moment they, it's not just teenage girls who are missing out. They will run for the people who use the park, which tends to be teenage boys, dog walkers, and middle-aged people who help plant bulbs. And that actually they are missing out. You know, there are a lot of people who are not accessing parks, and this particularly in cities where you know, there are a lot of people in high-rise housing who don't have access to green space, and that these barriers of access to green space are really you know, something that they need to tackle. So there are also people going into parks over the summer, and we're hoping we might be able to um, work with some of those projects, again, to do some short-term work in terms of getting um, uh, you know
2: girls more involved in parks and park life. I think what's important is to realise, you know, what we're saying isn't rocket science here. It really, really isn't. Um, We're stating things that are absolutely blooming obvious, except they're so obvious that we don't see them. So, you know, people don't need us in order to get on and talk to teenage girls about what they would like to see in their parks. You know, that this is something that... Um, park groups, local authorities, schools, youth groups can all kind of pick up and run with. Because, as I say, there's nothing special. There's nothing magic about what we're saying here. It's just we're saying it. And if people can hear it, then, you know, they can go and try and find solutions with their local communities because that's the other thing that's really important is that different communities will have different needs. Um you have to think carefully about the way that different different disadvantages interact. I'm going to say intersectionality, which is you know the sort of the, the, the word that's coined to say, you know, uh girls may be disadvantaged both by being a girl and by being from ethnic background or they may be disadvantaged by being a girl and suffering from a disability or they may be disadvantaged so there's lots of different ways you know social class the way that social class interacts with gender the way that community norms will interact with gender there's lots of intersectionality going on there and if you're going to make something that works for the teenage girls in your community you've got to talk to the teenage girls in your community you're not going to find that answer in a book Which is a shame, actually, because if you could find the answer in the book, then it would be so much easier to solve this, really. It would be brilliant, but it's not there. I think I'd say one thing as well that
1: we've had an incredible reaction so far. Um, It really is just the question of highlighting the issue. And in so many cases, we've been contacted by people going, exactly that. Heck yes, come and talk to us. How can we build this into what we're doing? It's been really amazing you know that there are so many institutions who are not doing this deliberately but who have just gone oh my goodness yes now you mention it this is something we need to address and so we've got a lot further a lot faster than I think we believe we would in the in the beginning which is incredible um so we've been talking to so go on
0: I wanted to ask you about the aftermath of Sarah Everard. There was a real emphasis um, on behalf of politi- politicians about lighting, one of the things you mentioned, but also increased policing and this idea that uh, boys needed to be educated to to make space for girls or to make girls feel space safe. D- do you see that as part of that um, uh, of the equation, or do you think this is a bit of a misnomer? There's also a spatial uh, issue here and a funding issue, or is there an education?
2: issue it absolutely it, it look it, the, the reasons that girls are excluded from space it's not one reason there's not one cure that you can go right we've sorted that if we if we redesign the space then everything will be fine no it's to do with the way that the spaces are designed it's to do with the way that teenage boys actively police the areas it is to do with the way that teenage boys kind of passively police the areas you know often it doesn't occur to the teenage boys that the way that they're behaving in the area is actually you know putting off girls you know we're talking to a young woman who skateboards and she she came to skateboarding quite late and she said you know i go down to the big skate park and it was really scary because there are these guys they're in their early 20s they're huge they are hammering down these Um, pipes and everything, and think, oh, I'm not going in there. Except that once you went in there, actually, the guys were really courteous. They clearly didn't want you getting in the way as they were coming down and doing a run. But they weren't unfriendly. They weren't negative. So as I say, I think there's lots of different aspects of behaviour. And I think engaging in conversations about the way that boys and girls interact with each other in public space is incredibly important. And it it is all part of the same conversation, the Me Too, the Everyone's Invited, um, this idea of safety and the right to belong. And there's a minority of boys who like the fact that they can exert power over girls in public spaces. You know, um, that's an unfortunate fact. As I say, it's a minority, and it would be very, very wrong to sort of try and tar everybody with the same brush, but there is a minority. And the majority of boys who reject that behaviour often don't feel empowered to stand up and say, I reject that behaviour. Again, something that we saw with everyone invited. A lot of young men saying, you know, we're appalled by what's going on here, but it's very hard to stand up and say anything because the overwhelming sort of hegemonic masculinity goes in one direction.
0: And in many ways, yeah. it's socially, it's been considered socially acceptable to catcall or to sexually intimidate women in public spaces. And I think part of this dialogue is about part of Me Too is saying, actually, that's not acceptable. It's changing what is socially considered yeah. acceptable.
1: Uh, but occurred okay, to Eva Kyle, who led the gender mainstreaming movement in Vienna and was really responsible for so much of the change there she said, and I think it's very true, you have to build for the world we live in, not the world as we would like it to be, because she had lots of people criticizing us for the criticizing her for the um uh, women-friendly architecture saying, well, aren't you perpetuating the idea that it's only women who care for children? She's like, yes, but this is where we are. And so, yes, it there, it's absolutely essential that there is a conversation, but at the same time, that's going to take a long time to change things. And so we just need to build spaces that work better for girls now, and then at the same time, have all these conversations.
2: But when you can't change the world in, you know, two years, sadly. It's that classic point, isn't it? You know, do we, you know, if you look in, in different areas, you know, it's like, you know, uh is it important to educate girls or should we concentrate on dismantling patriarchy? Well, you know, if we concentrate on dismantling the patriarchy, we're gonna have an awful lot of girls who aren't educated. So, you know, yes, we are about dismantling the patriarchy, but in the meantime, you know, we need to find practical ways to get girls back into space.
0: Do you think girls have been valued as consumers over having a right to public space? Has there been kind of a because I feel like, you know, when I talk think about spaces that are seen as welcoming to teenage girls, I'm 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 North American, so clearly I think of the shopping mall, but I and I think of Starbucks and I think of, you know, these spaces where you're welcome to come and buy something, but not necessarily the alleyway or the park or the the muga or you know these other spaces which um which I can't buy my way into.
2: I I think that's that's very interesting. And I think one of the, my 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 daughter is no longer a teenager, but when she did, she, you know, one of her more regular meetup places was the shopping mall. You know, we were very lucky. We lived near Stratford-Westfield, which is huge. And, you know, a very, very good mall. And the thing is, they would often go with no money. And I think there is an acceptance. I don't think that the shopping malls are necessarily only welcoming in people who've got money, because often they would have enough money for kind of two milkshakes between four to last them for an entire afternoon. You know, nobody was going to get rich off the back of these teenage girls. But one of the things that was attractive about that was the fact that that it was safe. It was secure. There were people. You were under surveillance. It was very, you know, it felt like a safe place. And I think, I don't know whether it's, it's obviously intentional that miles are made to feel safe. I don't think they're made to feel safe in order to attract teenage girls. I think they're made to feel safe for all sorts of good reasons. But a byproduct is that the teenage girls may feel more welcome there because it's safe, because there's surveillance. One of the things that does come across a lot, and we I've seen it sort
1: of work, is that teenage girls like to have passing traffic because that's an important part of safety. They don't want to be seen by their parents or the parents of their friends, but they want to just be in a place where they are seen by people passing by. And um, over the Easter holidays, they, some girls had made a park in a car park near us. Um, they were uh, rollerblading. They were There were two sets of girls skateboarders. And I was fascinated by the fact they'd chosen a particular space in this car park, partly because it's flat and not that well used. But there's a couple of places like that, and the girls had all chosen to be right next to the path, which is a major sort of pedestrian access into the centre of town. So people coming and going all all the time, and when the temptation is so often to put teenage facilities in a dark corner of the park where they won't annoy anybody, but then that doesn't feel safe for girls. Whereas a place, if you were to put stuff, kind of not, not right by, but within eyesight of the toddler's play area, within eyesight of the cafe. So it's part of the general bustle of the park. That's another way in which you can make teenage girls feel much more at home because there are people coming past and people just going to and fro
0: we did a, um, a study of King's cross, uh, and one of the, uh, criticisms and strengths of it appeared to be, um, that it has a lot of people surveil, you know, a lot of surveillance. So that it comes under criticism for that because it is a privately owned, uh, public space and that presence is, is felt. And, you know, in theory, uh, could intimidate some groups that have often been pushed out by being in, in surveillance spaces, but The anthropologist who did the study also noted a lot of single women walking around the site at all hours. So like making the point where they could cut through there on the way home because they knew it was, um, under surveillance. Yeah. And I think it's this interesting thing because we have this, um, this conflict, which comes out in the Sarah Everard uh, story as well, because of course it was a, a police officer, um, who murdered, uh, Sarah. So I, I think this, th- there is this tension between, um, surveillance and, and non-surveillance, passive surveillance, police surveillance, uh, and this, um, um, I, I don't. I, I don't expect you to have an answer to that. But do you do you see that coming out in your conversation? This um, th- this conflict between eyes on the street and uh, undercover police being deployed to bars and, and restaurants, as they're discussing uh, in the wake
2: of, of the Everard case. I, I think that, that there needs to be more research done into the way that teenagers respond to the presence of people. Because I think if you said to most teenagers, do you like surveillance, they would say no. But then if you frame the question slightly differently in terms of if you are walking home, do you feel more comfortable if there are just people around? The answer is yes. Well, why is that? Well, I guess because their presence would deter things or if something happened, somebody would see. And you go, okay, so is that surveillance? You know, And, and I think there's a lot wrapped up in the language there that's being used because it's, we talk about surveillance, but it's informal surveillance. If you stick a teenager's play area miles from visible grown-up eyes the risk of bad things is higher than if you stick it next to the coffee shop and the kids the little kids play area but nobody wants young people close to little kids area but when we say that what do we really mean by we don't want young people there you know probably what you're saying is we don't want large groups of teenage boys particularly from outside the area. And that's another one of those sort of quite complicated conversations, that people want spaces for their communities, but you don't want to build a fantastically sexy skate park, because if you build a fantastically sexy skate park, people from all over the area will travel to be in that space. And, you know, the best and the biggest skateboarders will arrive from all over because this is such a great facility you know and you've actually got to stop and go well having the biggest and the best and the sexiest skate park, maybe maybe that isn't what this community really needs and I think that's you know it it all links in but I think there's another interesting point in
1: there as well which is that making parks better for teenage girls actually makes parks better for a lot of Other people as well. If you're making a safe, well-trafficked park, it because older people have the biggest fear of crime and of being attacked, even though their rates are, in fact, relatively low. Um, You know, it's it's better for almost anybody, including in the end, teenage boys, because they are, in fact, the most likely to get attacked, even if they don't believe it and they think they're invincible. So, there's another important point in there as well. That is, although we are called Make Space for Girls, because that's the way the public sector equality duty frames things, and because it's a nice short. Um, name in fact, there are loads of boys who don 't want to take part in the range of activities that are currently yeah. being seen as for teenagers. you know there was a fascinating thing there was a group in Brent, which was actually really well funded by a developer because um, initially they said oh we 're doing this big development we want to engage the teenagers. shall we build a skate park and in fact, they funded a really good long you know long form research project with a group of teenagers and young people. And of that group, only one was a skateboarder. So they all turned around and said, no, we don't want a skate park. This is what we want. And they it was a really interesting piece of work. They produced a policy of what, what they thought spaces for young people should look like. They really, they learned a lot about the planning and development process. And the outcomes are, you know, really interesting. Um, so it's a very, it's just become this sort of default reaction. Oh, right, teenagers, skate park, Mooga, right, job done, moving on. Um Whereas, in fact, lots of people don't want this.
0: So some of our listeners will be working on master plans for future projects, large projects. They're going to want that mix of uses. They're going to want young families. They're going to want you know those young families to stick around. A lot of these projects are rental yeah. now. So they say, actually, we don't want the young families to leave when they have teenagers. We want them to feel like it's a place they can grow. What are the questions they should be asking themselves, designers and developers and local authorities, when they're looking at these um, uh, public spaces and thinking, what am I gonna
2: put there? Where where would you encourage them to start? Um, I would encourage them to start by reading our research document. I think that would be a very good place to start actually. It's, It's relatively readable and it just gives you a kind of, it gives you a series of jumping off points so that you don't just default to, um, well, that's put in a skate park. I think the question for, for you know, if you're doing new development, you know, if your master plan is looking at something, to be, what is tricky is so you kind of can't consult with the people who are necessarily going to be there, because you may not know who is going to be there. I mean, I think that that's the difficult thing. I think if you're working on something that is within a pre-existing community, the starting point is, is that is as that developer in Brent did spend a bit of time and a little bit of money to actually talk to talk to teenagers in that area take the view that perhaps well the teenagers that are currently in the area broadly representative of what might be here in 10 years time of course that's you know depending on where you are really you know i mean in in london the demographics are changing all the time if you go outside london maybe it's a slightly slower churn but but i think you know d- trying to engage with young people about what would what would make you stay and then it's not you know thinking about s- smaller spaces broken up spaces and and what the community wants and also trying to um Create spaces that destigmatize teenagers as well, because there is a feeling that, oh, we don't really want teenagers loitering around, do we? You know, that kind of mm, teenagers they loiter, they make the place look untidy, that sort of thing. Actually, loitering is a really important part of finding a way to create your own space away from home which teenagers actually have to do. Teenagers can't go from being in lockdown to being fully formed adults with nothing in the middle.
1: And I think the other thing is there are some architects and some planning firms who are already you know, working in the area. And so we can also point to people who are very happy to take this on. There's been some very good work done with developers in sort of play for younger children and making, you know, play streets and making developments accessible for younger children. And it doesn't take a great leap of imagination to extend that work into making a space work for teenagers as well. Also, there are, although there are no parks designed for girls in this country, there have been a couple of really good developments where they have created spaces that have ended up being well used across the demographic. So, you know, by families, by older people, by teenagers. Quite often, this is big, natural play spaces. Um, Because one of the things is that play, quite often, play spaces can be quite didactic. A skate park tells you to skate on it. A mooga, tells you it's a pitch, you have to play football. And girls really benefit from spaces that are open to more interpretation. In the Vienna example, one of the things, the way they broke up the MUGA was by building a concrete, and I can't describe it, it's a thing, and it's a sort of stepped thing with posts on it. So it acts as a divider, but it can also be a seat. It can be a stage. It can be something you kick balls against. And that something that doesn't tell you what to do is really beneficial for girls. And quite often, those natural play spaces that are designed with logs and climbing and nets and places that you can sit up on high, which is great because you feel really safe if you're on top of the top of the um, uh, entire play structure, uh, can work as a cross-generational cross-gender every you know everybody can enjoy that space and they you know and again we can point people to examples of where where that's been done. I think you make
0: an interesting point about natural play spaces about those uh, and that kind of links into what Imogen was saying about uh, loitering I mean when you have a green space loitering is expected of people um, you know you're expected to sit around in a circle on the grass and hang out there Uh, whereas you know all of a sudden it's around a skate park or or even if it's just on a street corner it's considered a more antisocial behavior so Mm -hmm. i mean i guess that is a question around where do where do trees and green come into this and then some of these parks and their design like you're saying they're they're large and those central spaces not necessarily being the most comfortable Uh, for girls and and maybe all of this co-locating I think how much of this is about inter intergenerational you know co-location and us feeling Mm -hmm. comfortable around it you also mentioned uh, stigmatization intersectionality you know our we had the uh, great controversy of segregated playgrounds um, about a year or two ago where there was a playground for for the um, you know luxury or higher end accommodation and a separate playground for for social housing, does class figure in to um, the design of these spaces or the way that they're um, created? Or are you seeing um, are you seeing that in your research that there's a sense that you you know you put a fence around and put it over? Is there a is there a tension there between the kinds of spaces that people opt for and the kind of people they think that they're going to
1: attract? I think there's a lot going on I mean it's, it's there is so much going on I think one of the ways in which class impacts is actually how whether girls are allowed to go to the park at all yeah and that's class and um, class and cultural background play a huge part in that because the other issue for safety is it's not just about teenage girls making decisions it's about their parents going you can't go to the park that's not safe Mm -hmm. um there's it's also about distribution of resources because particularly in london mugas tend to be very much in built-up areas in areas of high density social housing so they have a very particular demographic that's partly to do with Moogas and closed spaces, and they are seen as dangerous sometimes because they are basically a fenced-in group of teenage boys like an exhibit in a zoo. And so everyone goes, oh, Moogers. Um, but it's so dependent on where they are and, you know, and how they are being run. Um, but so yes, it is again, it's an important part of the intersectionality. Um, but I think that is to some degree, I think that's what is being addressed now in the terms of the people activating parks to try and remove these barriers to green space. This is something that has been seen, and obviously girls need to be part of that conversation. Um, Just a, a really interesting example, I went to see a park yesterday with a, it's a sort of park consortium who are trying to inject new life into parks in Bath and Bristol. But it just illustrates that the, the individual park makes all the difference because it, it being Bath, it was very hilly. Um, but actually the area they've set aside for a potential extension of teenage play area, play area where they are interested in putting some stuff that is good for girls, it's on a high high sort of hummock that's at one end of the park. So that, I would go, fabulous. You know, this is actually a really good space because it's by an entrance to a park and you can see for miles and there's a pathway running down the side so but all that shows is that the answers are so specific to the actual location that you are dealing with that only you know
2: there's only ever one answer in one place, and I think it also it, there's a recognition and it's probably been coming for a while but it's been fueled by lockdown and everything that you know parks are an incredibly important public amenity, but their potential benefit is is untapped because there is certainly prior to lockdown their usage you know there was a a sliver of the community that was using those facilities and an awful lot of people who were not and Lockdown sort of showed everybody, my goodness, you know, when people can't use the streetscape, when people can't, you know, those green spaces are incredibly important for everyone. And everybody should feel that they belong in those green spaces. And I think there's a real feeling that we shouldn't go back to the way things were with parks just being used by the same fairly small section of the community you know parks were for mums with small children parks were for people who wanted to use the mooger and the skate park who might be boys you know parks were for certain groups but I, I think during lockdown certainly in London more people started engaging with their parks and I think there's a real desire to kind of keep hold of that win and build on it and get m- more people actually saying there's this great park and it's as much for me to use as it is for everybody else and i mean there's a there's a there's a quote you know that, w- that we use quite a lot from a girl called lily who susanna said well you know what 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 do you do in the park and she said why would i go to the park there's nothing there for me And I think that's something that a lot of people feel about our green spaces. And I think local authorities and planners are suddenly going, well, that's just wrong, isn't it? The park is a public space. Everybody should feel there's something there for them, including teenage girls.
0: Well, that just leaves me to thank you so much for talking to me today about Make Space for Girls. I'm really interested in us supporting you on this fight, so please keep in touch with your next moves, your next reports, and and tell uh, tell our listeners how they can uh, support you and find out more and support you um, by offering up, hopefully, some temporary spaces for you to play with, or how do they get in touch?
2: Through our website
0: makespaceforgirls.co.uk and the report (laughs) the report is on there too so I will make sure to share a link to your um, research uh, with the podcast but thanks very much and, um, and I hope we'll be speaking again soon Thank you Thanks for listening Our podcast is produced by Simon Mercer with music by Fortet if you like what you hear, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash thedeveloperuk. You can sign up to our newsletter on our website, thedeveloper.live, and check out our live events on making more sustainable and equitable places at festivalofplace.co.uk. Thanks a lot. See you next time.